Well, it's a good morning. I'm glad to see all of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Acts chapter 9. We're going to cover the whole chapter this morning, so we have a lot to cover. Uh, So we'll get things started pretty quickly. Hopefully you've signed that roll sheet and are ready to go. As you're finding Acts chapter 9, let me just get you up to speed. This week, we're beginning a shift in the book of Acts. So up until this point, uh, the church has been born, so to speak, at the day of Pentecost, and the gospel has been extending out to uh, places like Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And the main character as it relates to the apostles has been Peter. Um, with other characters like Philip and others being uh, emphasized in certain places and making certain appearances. But today, we're going to see the miraculous conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who will become the main apostle in view starting in Acts 13. So the title of this message this morning is A Series of Miracles. We're going to see throughout Acts chapter 9, God doing incredible, miraculous things in the lives of, of many different people Uh, that begins this shift from Peter to Paul or from Jerusalem as the kind of locus point of concern for the gospel to the nations as we move out in the different missionary journeys of Paul. We'll also see that, that Paul or Saul, as you'll hear his name in this chapter, and just to be clear, that's just I think sometimes we get this like major thing of like, he was Saul and his name was changed to Paul. I don't mean to burst your bubble, but that's not what happened. Um, in, in Greek-speaking places, his name would have been Saul. In Hebraic-speaking places, his name would have been Paul. Uh, and you'll see his name interchanged throughout the book of Acts if you'll read it. So sometimes they call him Saul, sometimes they call him Paul. It is significant when God changes people's names. That's not what happened right here. So just moving forward, uh, we will see his ministry begins with proclamation of the gospel and persecution, that both of those things happen at the very beginning of his work. As Jesus will say to Ananias, as we'll read, Paul will know how much he has to suffer for the sake of my name. So we'll see persecution early on in Paul's ministry. And lastly, we'll see Peter take part in two amazing healings, one from sickness and one from death itself. And in all this, God's glory is being displayed. The Spirit is shining a light on Christ and sinners are turning to the Lord. That's really key as we think about when we see these miraculous sign events. What's the, what's the product of that? It's people coming to faith. It's people becoming believers. So, like I said, we have a lot to cover. So let's start together in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. We'll read through verse 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now let's pray just one more time before we go any further. God in heaven, We pray that as we open up your word and read the truth of the scriptures, 
you might, by the power of the Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts and minds to see and believe the glories of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, and the call that you have on our lives to be faithful followers of Christ in all things. We pray that as we see the story of Saul and these healings of Peter, that you would encourage our faith and uh, launch us out in steadfastness uh, to be faithful to your word, even when it's difficult, even when things don't go the way we think they ought to go. No matter our circumstances, would you find us faithful, clinging to your word, clinging to your truth? We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, the first big idea of our text is a miraculous conversion. A miraculous conversion. We meet back up with Saul, who has continued to persecute Christians. We met him in Acts chapter 8 as the one who approved Stephen's stoning. And now he's gotten uh, kind of a, a pass from the high priests to go into Damascus and to find people belonging to the way. And that's what they would call Christians at that, at that time. People who were followers of the way. Because Saul really believes that what he's doing is right. Saul really believes that what he's doing is honorable. Saul really believes that what he's doing is glorifying God. In fact, he thinks that he's being a faithful follower of Yahweh by going after these people who are so clearly in his mind blaspheming against the God of Scripture. His zeal and his passion is intense. His acquaintance with the Scriptures is clear. And so he's on a mission to destroy idolaters, and to bind up blasphemers. But as we see Saul on the road to Damascus, we realize that his perception of reality was fundamentally broken. Heavenly light shone. Saul is put on the ground, and a voice calls to him, and it's someone who knows him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus makes it clear. Persecution of Christians is nothing other than a persecution of the Lord himself. Up to this point, Paul has believed that all of his actions have been in the right. And in this stark moment with Jesus, he realizes that he has been exactly wrong. Paul is struck with blindness in this event, echoing the judgment of God in the Old Testament. So it's not going to be on the screen, but just listen. We don't have time for you to... Term, but in Deuteronomy 28, as Moses is re, uh, recounting from the Lord what kind of judgments will fall on Israel if they fail to obey his word and know his word and be followers of his commands. Listen to what it says in verse 28. It says, The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. So Saul is this current public display of a person who thinks that they know God, but are in fact far from him. Someone who thinks that they're obeying his word, but are in fact going against the word himself. And his being struck with blindness would be a, a, a sign to those who would see him to go something, something important, something divine is going on. So Saul is struck, showing that, well, he saw, but he couldn't see. I mean, he heard the word, but he didn't hear. And yet, 
Jesus is not going to leave him in the dark. Let's keep reading. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. All right, so, so Ananias, a disciple of Jesus, faithfully following the word of the Lord, even when it seems impossible, right? The Lord goes to him in a dream, says, Ananias, here I am. I want you to go to Saul. This, of all the people on the earth for Ananias to go to, Saul would probably be one of the last people. But not only is he going to go to Saul, he's going to bless him in Jesus' name and heal him in Jesus' name. And Ananias is like, this man has done great evil against you and against the people who call on your name, Lord. Why would we do that? And yet the Lord gets to decide what he does with Saul, not Ananias. It's not Ananias' choice to decide whether God is going to be kind to Saul or not, whether or not he's going to be gracious to Saul or not, whether he's going to extend forgiveness of sins to Saul or not. The facts are the facts. Saul was an evil, wicked man. As we'll read about later in his letters, he was an idolater, a blasphemer. Now let's stop here and just think about that for a moment. You were the same way. I was the same way. None of us came to the Lord already loving him. None of us came to the Lord already in love with his word and desirous to follow his commands for his namesake. And yet he showed kindness to us. He showed mercy to us. He, as he did with Saul, opened his eyes so that he might see reality. So don't skip the blessing that if you are in Christ, you, like Saul, were blind, groping in the dark, and hopeless, and yet the gospel came to you as a gift. And it was a gift that you received by his grace. What a blessing, what a treasure. But not only do we need to think about ourselves, we also need to stop and think about our circumstances and the people around us. Because you may be walking through something right now that you think there's no way God can use this. There's no way that God can make this 
a, a positive thing in my life or a, a thing that glorifies him. Or maybe there's a person in your life that they're so, they're so evil, they're so wicked, they're so wrong, they're so mean. This person, there's, there's no way they'll ever believe in Jesus. There's no way they'll ever repent. There's no way they'll ever change their ways. Those, there's no way they'll ever ask for forgiveness. The story of Saul tells us that if they are still breathing, then God's grace is still sustaining them and that there is still hope for them. It is not for us to decide, just like it's not for Ananias to decide what God does with Saul. It's not for us to decide what God will do with the people around us. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to be faithful witnesses of the gospel, faithful displays of the love of Christ, faithful neighbors who love one another and love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's exactly what we see in Saul. Ananias comes, the spirit falls, his eyes are opened, he's baptized, and his life was sovereignly redirected from one of destroying the church to being one who God uses to lay a foundation for the church. Let's see what happens next. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So second scene, we see a miraculous conversion, number one. Number two, we see proclamation and persecution. Saul kicks his Christian ministry off very quickly and very pointedly. After a few days with the disciples, he began to show how Jesus is the Son of God, how Jesus is the promised Christ. Saul came into this newly received faith with a wealth of biblical knowledge. You go read some of his letters, he will tell you, I'm a Pharisee among Pharisees. As to the law, blameless. This guy knew the Bible. And now that he sees that Jesus is the key to the scriptures, he is able to confound the Jews. Even his hearers are amazed, not just at his words, but the clear change of heart that they perceive in him. Here's the point I want you to see. The zeal of a new believer like Saul keeps the main thing the main thing. The focus is on Jesus. The focus is on the fact that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is our Savior, who he is and what he's done. So whether you've been following Jesus as long as you can remember or you are a recent believer, we all can join Saul in making much of Christ wherever we go. That's his pattern, and that will be his pattern for the rest of his life. And yet, we also recognize that danger comes with speaking the truth about Jesus. Danger comes. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, 
lowering him in a basket. So like the prophets, like Jesus, like Stephen before him, the murderous desires of the Jews are now turning on to Saul. So Saul escapes. He recognizes that proclamation about the truth of who Jesus is is going to come with risk. It's going to come with danger. It's going to come with persecution. It's going to come with people being frustrated by him. It's going to come with a certain level of status being taken away from him. So with proclamation comes persecution. Let's keep reading. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So so notice here that when Saul goes to Jerusalem to escape the death plots that were against him for proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, even the disciples in Jerusalem were like, I just don't know, man. I just don't know if this Saul guy's legit. I mean, we watched him imprison our friends, our family members. We watched him affirm the the, the execution of our brother Stephen. I mean, how can we know for sure that Saul really has had a change of heart? How do we know that he's not just a, a double agent? How do we know that he's not just trying to get close to us to kill us or to imprison us? They were shocked by Saul's conversion. And in one sense, it's understandable. They had been burned before. They knew Saul from before. So what would it take? What's it going to take for these disciples in Jerusalem to really see Saul for the changed person that he is? What's it going to take for them to look at him and go, I just don't know if you're really any different. I just don't really know if you've actually changed your ways. I I know you're saying the right things, but how can we know for sure? Well, it would take Barnabas. It would take another brother. It would take the son of encouragement, as he is called. It would take a good, godly man to take action and even take some risk himself of loss of reputation or other things because he knew what the right thing to do was. And so he met Saul and brought him to the apostles. And from that meeting, you have the affirmation of the apostles given to Saul so that Saul goes out and proclaims the gospel all the more. And now the brothers and sisters of the church see Saul not as an enemy, but as a brother. Now, students, wisdom and discernment and maturity and a lot more goes into an action like what Barnabas did. But this is a model for us to follow and a model of the kind of character that we ought to pursue. Are we willing to move towards people when others won't? Are we willing to go towards a person with some risk involved 
when others say, I just, don't, I just don't think that's good. I just don't think that's right. Are we going to take on some risk like Barnabas did and move towards those in our midst when it's hard, when it's risky? I'm not saying be foolish. Again, let me reiterate. Barnabas was full of wisdom and discernment and maturity. He also made a bold decision. So from there, Saul continues to preach and he continues to receive threats. So much so, as we read in verse 30, he has to be taken to Tarsus. He has to be taken to another city because everyone in Jerusalem wants to kill him now. We end with a summary statement from Luke in verse 31. Look at this. So, in light of all the things that we've just talked about, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So, so get, the, get the geography in your mind. If you're thinking about Israel in the time of the Roman Empire, you have Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, and Galilee in the north. And so what Luke is saying is all of Israel is now experiencing the gospel that has taken root in these places to where churches have been formed. And in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, these churches are multiplying. They're expanding. They're growing. They're spreading. The church is expanding. The gospel is expanding. More and more people are experiencing peace from God, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So would you just stop for a moment before we conclude with Peter's healings and ask yourself those kinds of diagnostic questions for just a moment. Do you have peace with God? Are you walking in the fear of the Lord? Do you know the comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit? I encourage you. It'll be repeated again. I encourage you to talk about those things in your groups when we have time in just a few minutes. So let's end then by looking not at Saul, but at Peter's ministry during this time. So verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. All right, so stop there. Our last uh, stop on this tour this morning is uh, healing and resurrection. So third thing, healing and resurrection. In Lydda, there's a man named Aeneas who's been bedridden for eight years. He's been paralyzed. That's a long time. Like eight years in bed is a long time. Now we've already seen the apostles have been given supernatural gifts from the Holy Spirit to heal. And what's good for us to be reminded and to notice in this text is that Peter is clear and Peter is convinced that the power to heal is not Peter's. It's not for Peter to make a name for himself. These miraculous events are not so that Peter can be seen as awesome. No, he says, Jesus Christ 
heals you. Sometimes in your life, the timing of the Lord provides immediate supernatural relief to our pains and sorrows, just like this story with Aeneas. And his story quickly became talk of the town, out to the plain of Shara, past Lydda, all the way out to the coastal cities. So we can pray as Christians that when our circumstances overwhelm us or when things seem to hinder us, we can pray expectantly that God can and would deliver us just like he did Aeneas. But what happens when the suffering continues? What happens when the hardship doesn't let up? What happens when the frustrations of your life don't get less intense but seem to compound? Well, I think that's why we have the next story. So let's keep reading and we'll end here. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. You and I and every person who has ever lived have sufferings and circumstances and pains and sorrows and sinful struggles and battles that will last with us until we die. The story of Tabitha shows us that sometimes illnesses don't lead to a miraculous healing just in the nick of time. They lead to death. And yet, the pattern of Scripture, whether it's Elijah and the widow's son in 1 Kings 17, Jesus and Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, or here with Peter and Tabitha in Acts chapter 9, the pattern of Scripture is this. Although it does end in death, Death is not the end. We don't know the timing of her death and the two men coming to Peter in Acts chapter 9. The text is unclear. Was it before or after she died that they reached out to Peter? It seems like it would be before. It says that she took ill and then she died. But, but here's, the, here's the point, regardless of the timing, here's the point that I want you to hear as we conclude. If you need help, ask for it. If you need something, ask for it. If you're struggling, share it. If you need someone to come alongside you, make your needs known. There are leaders here. There are leaders at Lakeview that, that want to listen, that want to help. You have 
table leaders on Sunday mornings. You have equipping group leaders on Wednesday night. You have me, you have Rasha, you have our interns who are here all the time. If you need help, ask for it. If you're struggling, reach out. And more than that, more than the people that I've mentioned, Jesus sees you and he always knows your need. You can run to him and you can trust that all that is happening really is going to be for his glory and really is going to be for your good as impossible as it may seem. I don't say that to make your problems and hardships and sufferings less intense than they are or less important than they are. I say that to tell you the truth. The good news of the gospel for sinners is that we can have eternal life and freedom from death and judgment and our sins paid for by Christ. But the good news of the gospel for believers is that nothing, nothing is wasted. So in both of these miraculous events, healing and resurrection, word spread to the surrounding areas and it led to people turning to the Lord. It led to people believing in the Christ. It led to people repenting of sin and placing their faith in Jesus. Don't think that God can't use your sufferings to do the same thing. Don't think that God can't use your hardships to bless and encourage and even be the means by which the gospel is made known to people around you. Don't think for a moment that God can't use that hardship in your life to produce holiness in you that a trillion years from now, you will see not as harm, but as gift. We pray, don't we? That God would bring an end to our sufferings quickly. That God would bring an end to our hardships Immediately, we pray that God would, would cause the sins of our hearts to be put to death so that we can put on righteousness. We, we pray that God would cause the tensions of our heart towards those around us or towards our enemies or towards our friends and loved ones, those, those things that we know aren't right. We pray that God would make them right and make them right now. And so we rejoice with the healing of Aeneas. But we also trust God is just as active with Tabitha. God is just as caring with Tabitha. God is just as invested in Tabitha. And when your sufferings stay, don't believe that he's less interested in you, that he's less invested in you, that he's less loving towards you, that he's less kind towards you. He may allow those things to stay. And in his good providence, we will learn one day why that's a gift. And so we trust him. But in the meantime, we do ask for grace. We do ask for help. And perhaps the Lord has given you some hardships and sufferings so that you might humble yourself and reach out to those who can help. Whether that's a small group leader or a table leader or a pastor or a youth girls director or someone, a mom or dad.